Take your Bibles and remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we are continuing in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, or 13 through 16, excuse me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Father, we are before your word. Father, we are before your truth. And Father, as we talk about temptations this morning, sometimes, Father, as verse 16 says, we can be deceived. And so, Father, as we walk through how sin really moves in us and what draws it out from us, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom from on high to receive this word, to understand this word, and Father, to process this word, and to grow in our faith in receiving it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Temptations. There's not a lot of jokes out there about temptations, but I did find one. A minister parked his car in a no-parking zone in a large city because he was short of time. And he couldn't find a space with a meter. Then he puts a note under the windshield wiper that read, I have circled the block ten times. If I don't park here, I will miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. When he returned, he found a citation from a police officer along with this note. I have circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I will lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. I figured since we're going to be talking about a heavy topic on temptation and sin, it's probably good to just kind of relax a little bit before we really get into it. In the last two weeks, we examined trials. And in the first 12 verses of James, we discovered the six truths concerning trials that aid in our spiritual maturity. This week, in the text we have before us, James now addresses something equally important as trials. And those are temptations. Now, when we look at the previous week's verses and now this week's, it seems James abruptly changes the topic of his letter from trials to temptation with little no separation between the two. However, when we understand that the root word for trials is also the root word for temptation. Now, trials, as we learned last week, comes from the outside of our lives, and their purpose is to produce something, 
such as steadfastness and spiritual maturity. Temptations, on the other hand, are also external. But their origins, they give them life, begin on the inside and they work their way out. Whereas trials are to produce something positive, temptations are always purposed to do what? Destroy, to steal. And so this morning in the backdrop of growing in spiritual maturity, James reveals how temptations are generated. And it's best that we understand that. He's going to discourse as to where they actually come from. And the devastating effects that they can have on our lives. And the devastating effects that it can have on an unbeliever's life, if unrepented. And so James provides this for us, for our knowledge, for our understanding, for our awareness, so that we may recognize it when it happens. So let's begin with verse 13. Let no one say he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. As we face trials in life, we have two options. We can either allow them to do the work God has intended in making us more mature in faith, to make us more steadfast, to make us more patient, or they could produce sin. I like what one of the commentators I read said concerning this when he wrote this. There are two potential paths in any trial or test. Testing trial met with endurance makes us mature and complete. It leads to life. Or testing met with selfish desires leads to sin and death. Within a trial, we have a choice. We can either draw closer to God and draw closer, or we can draw closer to our own selfish desires. And this is why James is making a distinction here between a trial and a temptation. Because like I said earlier, they derive from the same Greek word. Understand the original audience that is reading James's letter on how that word could be used either way. Now, James begins this verse by stating something we need to understand very clearly. God does not tempt anyone to sin. He may bring a trial, he may bring a test, but he never tempts anyone to sin. He is not the source of temptation and never will be. So why then does James even mention this? I don't know if you're like me, I look at those questions, I'm going, why did you even put that in there? Because James understands the sinful nature of you and me. He understands the sinful nature of his audience. He understands the sinful nature that promotes selfishness that lies within us, especially during a trial. When we tend to shift the blame and not accept responsibility for our own actions. I'm sure we've all met people who automatically point the finger to someone else for something they have done. They immediately, upon any kind of negative attention, will deflect and project it somewhere else, even though they're responsible. From the very beginning, we see this. It's within the human nature of sin. 
where Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed Satan, the serpent. And the Bible is full of examples such as these. And we could do the same with God. Have you ever heard somebody blame God for their sin? They may not say it outright, but they say things like this. Why would God put me in such a position where I have no choice? Why didn't God stop me before it was too late? I am angry with God for what He has allowed in my life. Impossible, you say, that a believer would ever say something like this? Early on in my Christian walk, I remember several times when I vented my frustration to God for sin because He didn't stop me from doing it. Although properly recognizing His sovereign power, I failed to understand my own responsibility in the decisions that I made. And it is verses like this that we find in James that refined my understanding and taught me and renewed my mind as to what sin is, where it comes from, and where it lurks within the human heart. And that it never comes from God. It always comes from us. You see, God is holy. God is just. God is righteous and without sin of any kind and could never entertain the idea of tempting someone to sin, and he never will. And James wants this to be understood right out of the gate. Because if we miss this, we will not accept where temptation actually comes from and take responsibility for it, i.e., repent. So then how, are we are t- then how are we tempted? Well, verse 14 and 15 give us that answer. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Within verses 14 and 15, James reveals the process by which we sin. You know, when I was in the Air Force... We, they introduced something while I was in the military uh, called Quality Air Force. And this Quality of Air Force caused us to look at the processes by which we operate and then map them out. And so we would take these little post-its and map out each one of our processes in order to understand the process, in order to improve the process, and that if anything ever happened along, as we go through the process, that causes a problem or a situation, we can identify it before it becomes an issue. This is what James is providing here as it relates to sin. He's providing the process by which it operates within us. And it's well for us to know it. And as we go through this process, we will see that there are critical steps that allow us to avoid falling into that temptation. You see, once you know the process, then you're able to gauge or to interrupt it if it's going in the wrong direction. And in the first step of this process, we see desire. Desire is an interesting word here because it has a duality of meaning. Right? 
On the one hand, desires could be quite benign and normal. They could be very natural. For example, it's okay to desire food. It's okay to desire something to drink because you're thirsty. It's okay to desire your wife or your spouse or your husband. It's, a des- it's okay to have a desire to do well in life. In fact, the same word that James is using here to describe the true source of temptation is the same word, he, uh, same word that Luke used in Luke twenty two fifteen when he says, I have earnestly, this is Jesus talking, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Same word. And so the word itself lends to a duality. One that is benign, one that is not. But it is when our desire moves beyond the normal appetites and goes against God's word, goes against God's will, that's when we get in trouble. It is here where we'll find ourselves given into sin by way of corrupted desires. And it is this corrupt desire that leads to temptation of sin. It all starts with desire. That's the starting point. And because of the fall of man, our desires have been corrupted and easily swayed into appetites for sin. Now it's important to understand that the line between these two of a natural desire and a corrupted desire is very thin. It's very thin. It reminds me of a, when I hunted in the Badlands, there was one section of of a hill that we had to negotiate a couple of years ago. And it was made by, I believe, maybe cattle or deer or whatever. But it was a, I mean, it it was a pretty progressive type of hill, something you certainly don't want to fall down. And there was just a small little trail that cut across it. And so we're taking one foot after another. That's all the room there was. One misstep, 50 feet down to the bottom of a washout. And that's how close it is within the natural and corrupted desire. And we can fall in a heartbeat if we're not focused on what we're doing. Now, before I move on to the next step in the process, which we see here, the first one is desire. Some of you may be asking, well, why isn't temptation the first step, right? Why? Because we read left to right, we read top to bottom. And if you read the word, it would make sense. Well, temptation's the first step in sin. So why isn't it? Well, first, the Greek word used for temptation is the same word used for trial. It's just in the context in which it's used. We know that we'll all face trials in our life, and some of those trials can be temptations to sin. For instance, if you're going through a marital difficulty, there might be a temptation for adultery. If you're going through a financial trial in your life, there might be a temptation to steal or to cheat or to do something illegal to obtain money. And so the trial in and of itself, as we learned last week, is a test in order to produce something. But it is our desire that takes that trial and may turn it into a temptation to sin. 
Secondly, the reason why temptation is not the first one is if there's no desire, there is no temptation. For example, if one is not given to gluttony, he cannot be tempted by food. If a person is not disposed to money, he cannot be lured by money. And so temptation is only viable when you desire it. And this is why desire is the first step in the process. The third reason temptation is not one of the first steps or any of the steps is because if you remove the object of temptation, there is no temptation. That's not true either. You can remove a bottle of alcohol in the presence of an alcoholic. They're still an alcoholic. You can remove drugs in front of somebody who does drugs. They're still addicted to drugs. It's not the object that creates a temptation. It's the desire in you. And that's why things that tempt you don't tempt me. Things that tempt me don't tempt you. Our desires are different. You could put all the safeguards you want on your mobile devices and computer, and yet it doesn't eliminate the desire for porn. It'll just try to find it somewhere else. And so sin starts with desire. That which drives us from within ourselves to possess and obtain. That goes beyond our natural appetites. Goes against God's word. Goes against God's will. Goes against the life that we have in Christ. And this then leads us to the second step that James provides. And that's deception. Now, this word's kind of unique, too, because it uses two words, lured and enticed. Now, these two words are descriptive of fishing and hunting. Where fish or an animal is lured in biting something that is enticing them to bite. They are attractive elements of temptation. And the enemy uses them extremely effectively. You know, by and large, Satan and his minions use schemes and traps far more than they do individual attacks. Why? Because it's more effective. A billboard can be seen by thousands of people who may be drawn to what's on that billboard. Or that television show. Or what's on that computer. Now, allure and enticement are always present. They're always out there. And Satan does a very good job in using them. And if we're not careful, these lures and enticements can lure us away into sin because of our desires. And remember, the three schemes that he uses is lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are very effective schemes. And they're manifested in several different ways. And so we should be wise to determine that. A great example of this is found in Proverbs chapter 7. Now this is going to be some lengthy scripture here, but listen to the story. Proverbs chapter 7. For at the window of my house... I looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man 
lacking sense. Passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening and at the time of night in darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed in a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home, and he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and full moon he will come home. With much sed seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, sons, listen to me and be attentive to my words and my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stay, stray into her past. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol, going down to the chamber of death. That is how it works. We have no idea that that young man was destined for her home. But as soon as he she, she seen her, seen how she was dressed, her speech, it lured him in, enticed him in. And when that happened, sin. You see, sometimes the luring and enticement ignites our desires. Like I said, they're always out there. And they ignite our desires. Salespersons, salespeople, if you will, are masters at this. And they know the desires of people and how to trigger them into buying something that they may not even need or want. This is how impulse aisles work at the grocery store. How many times waiting in line do you look and say, you know, I probably need that. And you really don't. I don't know how many rolls of duct tape I have now. But here's the thing, behind all of the deception, behind all the allure, something there is a catch. Behind every bait is a hook, and every alluring piece of bait is a trap. And once we bite or take the bite, we are now captivated by sin. Brothers and sisters, sin always has a catch. It will always attempt to trap. And when we are lured in and enticed and bite, we find the next step in the process. Disobedience. If you recall, the verse says, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. Now here James moves from the picture of a fishing lure and bait to one now of a mother giving birth. It's a great analogy. Because sin is not conceived from the outside. 
Sin is conceived from the inside. Matthew 15, 11 says this, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now, unlike fish who instinctively respond to bait presented to them, or a trap set for an animal, for us it's a choice of the will. In fact, Wearsby points out that the temptation deals with the emotion, enticement with the intellect. But to take the bait is an act of the will. And when this happens, desire has taken over the will and weakens it. Christian living, our walk in Christ is a walk of the will. We are called upon through God's word to choose righteous action over unrighteous action every time. Obedience over disobedience. To do the will of the Father over our own personal will. And the more we give our will unto God, and it is guided by the Holy Spirit, and we are in His Word, and we are prayed up, the more we will desire to do the things of God. That is why renewing our mind is so important. Refining our theology is so important. Growing in the wisdom and knowledge of the understanding of God through His Word is so important. Writing the Word of God on your heart as to be directed by it is so important. Because it armors you up. It gives you a defense. So that the arrows of temptation cannot penetrate. And when desire is conceived, we then become impregnated with sin. The act of the will deciding upon itself for itself has now taken the bait, and as a result, sin is conceived, given life, by its very own disobedience. That's what sustains it. Now, initially, we may not see it, right? Just like a woman who has no idea she has conceived and was with child. But over time, the telltale signs of pregnancy will form. It's the same for us as well. When sin is conceived, it grows, if not dealt with. It reveals itself in the choices that we make and the things we desire. And it becomes as much a part of who we are as a baby is to a mother. And after a period of time, the mother gives birth for what has conceived within her is now fully formed in the womb and it's ready to be revealed itself to the world. And sin conceived will be sin birthed and this sin that is birthed has its own life now. And from this point, it begins to grow. And when it is fully grown in the life of the sinner, it brings us to the last step in the process. Death. Death. The ultimate end of our desires, if not resisted and rebuked within ourselves, will ultimately lead to death. Sin always leads to the death of something. There's never a time where it doesn't. Sin never leads to true happiness. Sin never leads to true fulfillment. Sin never leads to true joy. Sin never leads to deliverance. 
never leads to reconciliation or forgiveness. It never leads to a better life. It actually destroys it. Now, the word death used by James here means death in all facets of life. Physical, spiritual, and eternal. And this is the grand warning of James as it relates to sin. And why he's painstakingly providing the process of sin so that we might be aware of its stages in order to thwart from bringing death. Now, because James provides the basic premise of how sin works, I think it's important to provide some context as it relates to this verse in relationship to two types of people, those who are saved and those who are unsaved. For those who have yet to believe and place their faith in Christ, I say this to you. You were born in sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Additionally, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And for the wages of sin is death. Physical, spiritual, eternal. If you continue to live your life absent of faith in Jesus Christ, death is assured. If this sin is not dealt with by way of repentance and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the ultimate eternal end is going to be death. And that's not a good deal. But there is hope. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. And He will give you eternal life. And you will escape the permanent position of sin, which is death. And because God so loved the world, He gave His Son, who went to the cross of Calvary, and gave Himself and paid the penalty for our sin by way of propitiation, and through that justified us and imputed us with His righteousness, and reconciled us to the Father. And if you place your faith in Him, you receive all of that. And without faith in Jesus Christ, and a life given unto Him that is filled with the Holy Spirit, you will remain under the curse of sin. You will remain under the curse of death. I know that's harsh, but hell is a very serious place. It's a very real place. And for those who don't place their faith in Christ, That'll be their eternal place. But what about those who have placed their faith in Christ? How do we understand what James is saying here? Because we're talking about death, right? We're talking about when sin comes, there's death. Okay, wait, wait. I thought I was saved, but let's go into that. Although we have been spared eternal death by our faith in Jesus Christ and have been given eternal life through Christ 
as the second part of Romans 6.23 says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what then does this verse mean to us? It means this. Although we are eternally secure in Christ and fully redeemed, fully reconciled, sin still has an effect on our lives. And how it affects us is it interrupts the fellowship that we have with God. And it greatly diminishes the light of Christ in our lives. As a result, we are weakened in our relationship and susceptible to all other manners of sin. And as a result, we will not be walking in the light. We'll be, very, therefore, we'll be actually quenching the Holy Spirit. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. You see, there's consequences to sin. We don't like to think about that. Yes, you're fully redeemed. Yes, your sin has been forgiven. Christ went to the cross and paid for your sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But there are consequences to sin. If you have an adulterous affair, you can bring death to your marriage. If you steal, you could go to jail. If you live a life of pride and arrogance, you will fall. Sin has consequences for the believer and unbeliever. But praise God and Jesus, we are eternally His. And James is outlaying everything that we need to understand about where sin comes from. It generates from our desires and works its way out. And at each stage, we have an opportunity to stop and repent. And that's why we need to pray in the Holy Spirit that He would examine our hearts and see if there would be a wicked way within it, therefore revealing it so that we can repent of it. I'll conclude with verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brothers, Do not be deceived as to where sin really comes from. Understand its process. Be sensitive to its stages so that it never truly manifests itself in your life. He's provided us the truth, the true source of temptation. And we need to take note of it. We need to understand it. We need to be sensitive to it so that before it gives birth to death, we can stop it. Brothers and sisters, James makes it plain that our own desires tempts us to sin. Our desire for pleasure, our desire for materialism, our desire for control, our desire for greed. 
Not that we know that where the true source of this comes from, we can better understand it and address it by way of prayer, by way of renewing our mind, by way of being dependent upon the Lord, by walking in the Spirit, by walking in the light and being obedient to God. We're all going to face temptations just like we're going to face trials. Know your desires. Pray that God would reveal them to you so that you understand exactly how you are lured and enticed. And then pray a hedge of protection and empowerment by the Holy Spirit to not give in to those desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it speaks truth. And so, Father, we thank you for what you have revealed through your servant James. And may we walk in it. May we grow in it. May we mature in it. And so, Father, as we walk out of this sanctuary and into this world that you've called us to be sojourns, let us now be armed with that which derives sin within us so that we, Father God, may not choose it, but choose you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.